for those who didn't catch my comments at the beginning of the rerun episode I put out this week, the fact that today's episode is not about the movement for black lives and police brutality certainly does not mean that we are unaware of the current situation. Research for episodes on that topic is already underway, and I'll be getting to those next week. Today, I have for you the topic that was in the works from before the protest. However, I would argue that these topics aren't actually as unrelated as they may seem at first glance. Maintaining an empire by keeping other nations down through demonstrations of violence and cruelty is really just the flip side of the coin from keeping the oppressed classes oppressed right here at home through basically the same tactics. So, Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the growing importance of China on the world stage and the growing instinct of the American empire to confront it, and how we're using the coronavirus to help stoke a new Cold War, because you can't be an empire without an enemy after all. Clips today come from Counterspin, The Brian Lehrer Show, Jacobin Radio, Democracy Now!, The Ezra Klein Show, The Red Nation Podcast, The Michael Brooks Show, The Empire Files, and Fortress on a Hill. A cable sent to State Department officials in March was obtained by the Daily Beast. It contained talking points, apparently originating at the National Security Council, for U.S. officials speaking about coronavirus and the White House's response in relation to China. We're being told to try and get this messaging out in any way possible, including press conferences and television appearances, an anonymous official told the Daily Beast. That messaging included not just claiming that the Chinese Communist Party disastrously bungled the country's response because it, quote, cared more about its reputation than its own people's suffering, close quote, but also insisting that, quote, the United States and the American people are demonstrating once again that they are the greatest humanitarians the world has ever known, close quote. Go big or go home, I suppose. Corporate media are playing their own role in laying the groundwork for a new Cold War with China, presenting the nation as a hostile power that needs to be kept in check. As Greg Shupak writes for FAIR.org, the Washington Post ran an article last month by Republican Senator Mitt Romney, the second line of which stated, quote, The COVID-19 pandemic has revealed that, to a great degree, our very health is in Chinese hands. From medicines to masks, we're at Beijing's mercy, close quote. Details like the U.S. having 21 times as many nuclear warheads as China, or the fact that it's the U.S. dollar and not the Chinese yuan that underpins the global financial system, don't enter into it. China has a, quote, grand strategy for economic, military, and geopolitical domination, close quote. And thus the West must respond with a, quote, unified strategy among free nations to counter China's trade predation and its corruption of our mutual security, close quote. Also, quote, because our military has missions around the world, this means that in the Pacific, where China concentrates its firepower, it will have military superiority, close quote. In other words, China is a danger because it concentrates its firepower in the ocean nearest to it, while the U.S.'s divine right to empire requires that its military saturate the globe, including a massive presence in the Asia-Pacific region. 
The U.S. and China have the world's largest bilateral trade relationship right now, but for Romney, particularly in sectors such as phone technology and medicine, quote, the free nations must collectively agree that we will buy these products only from other free nations, close quote, to protect our security. Romney used the words predator, predatory, or predation eight times, along with his repeated invocation of free nations, propagating a time-worn worldview of deceitful, barbaric Orientals taking advantage of innocent, rule-abiding Americans, whose businesses naturally never do anything that could be viewed as predatory and whose nation can unequivocally be described as free. The Washington Post's George Will likewise said that it's necessary to stand up to China, encouraging presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden to take up with far-right Republican Senator Tom Cotton's, quote, measured but insistent support for an investigation into the possible role of a Wuhan China research laboratory in the coronavirus outbreak, close quote. Apparently, Biden's campaign ad that claims Trump rolled over for the Chinese and that his travel ban failed to make the U.S. airtight against them was insufficient. Along with the attempt to mainstream a dubious conspiracy theory, Will endorsed Cotton's questioning of, quote, the visas for people from China to pursue postgraduate studies here in advanced science and technology fields. If Chinese students want to study Shakespeare and the Federalist Papers, that's what they need to learn from America. They don't need to learn quantum computing and artificial intelligence from America, close quote. Asian-American groups are reporting a surge in racist abuse, harassment, and assault on a par with that in the wake of September 11th. That is certainly connected to Donald Trump tweeting things like, quote, it was the incompetence of China and nothing else that did this worldwide killing, close quote. It's also related to elite media coverage that conveys essentially the same thing. Simply put, your thesis is that Xi Jinping and Donald Trump acted in very similar authoritarian-style ways, allowing the virus to take root more than it had to. So let's start with Xi Jinping. As you described, he initially tried to repress news of the true danger in his country. Can you take us back to the beginning of that and explain how? What we know is that the virus first emerged sometime in November in Wuhan, that there were cases of spread of this strange new pneumonia throughout Wuhan all through the month of December, that there were physicians and lab technicians doing analysis who said this looks a lot like SARS. The symptoms are similar to SARS, which, of course, China went through in 2003 and covered up when it started uh, in 2002. Um, and they could see that in lab analysis, it looked a little like the SARS virus. And so there was already a percolating sense of concern and fear among healthcare workers, which came to a head on December 30th when one particular physician, Li Wenliang, uh, posted uh, in an internal medical chat room, not to the general public, important point, um, 
but to warn his fellow physicians, hey, you know, I think there's something out there that looks a lot like SARS, and here from one of my medical colleagues is a sample uh, lab report that came back on one of these patients that says it tests similarly to the SARS virus. He and seven other physicians that worked with him um, were, were reprimanded severely, were brought before authorities. They had to sign statements that they were liars, that they were rumor mongers. Uh, Li Wenliang famously contracted the virus from one of his patients and died on February 7th of COVID. He's that ophthalmologist in his 30s who died, right, after having discovered the virus? 34 years old. 34 years old and uh, very healthy otherwise. And all of the other, he has now been officially declared a national martyr, and he's now got heroic status, but he certainly never experienced that from the state while he was alive, nor did any of the other physicians and journalists who were trying to tell the truth. One of those journalists has never been seen again. He was removed from his home in Wuhan and has, quote-unquote, disappeared. And there was tremendous repression of social media that was executed all across China uh, so that you could watch in real time if you could read Chinese or at least have a sense of what was going across, you could watch Chinese social media and see in real time postings disappear because they had keywords in them, SARS, pneumonia, Wuhan pneumonia, so, uh, any keyword that the artificial intelligence would pick up and pop out. So and why people- would Xi Jinping and his government have done that? Because if they had any real sense that the virus was as contagious and deadly as it is, they would have wanted to stop it and contain it rather than cover up word of it and let it get out. Well, one of the things I spent a lot of time digging on, and mind you, I had a bit of a head start because I was in China in 2003 covering SARS and went back several times to sort of retell the SARS story, talk to people who'd been in the middle of it, including the now sort of um, leader of China's anti-COVID effort, Zhang Nanshan, who was the first in Guangzhou to identify SARS in 2003. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was sensitized. I knew how the government responded to SARS, which was a lockdown of the nation, which was lying, cover-up, repression of reporters. Once it's made public, then turn around and repress the whole nation, shut it all down. So I knew that that's what was coming, and I was paying attention to all of that at the time. But it's very interesting. We now know that on January 7th, which crucially is a date one week after the physician said, you know, there's a covered up problem here. And then on New Year's Eve, our time, uh, the government of Wuhan officially acknowledges that they do have some strange new disease. They emphatically insist that it's not SARS and it's nothing like SARS. And don't worry, we've got it all under control. People are only getting it from animals in this animal market. And we shut the market down, so there's nothing to look at here. You know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But on January 7th, Xi Jinping goes into the state council in a very important then-secret meeting and says, what's going on in Wuhan is so serious that I'm taking charge. So here you have the head of state of the second largest and most powerful country in the world 
saying largest economy, saying, uh, you know, I'm personally intervening in what we're telling the rest of the world is a tiny little outbreak that's only associated with an animal market. Obviously, he already knew and had access to data that was saying something very different. Yet, they continued all the way up until January 20th to give what we now know was completely false data to the World Health Organization. So that day after day, the numbers didn't seem to budge. Day after day, it was always less than 50 people supposedly infected. A couple of times, the numbers even went backwards. These alleged cumulative totals got reported lower. Oh, we made a mistake. This one was just a routine pneumonia. We're taking it off the list. So when Trump and his allies say... We blame China because they they let this out through that cover-up. They may be distracting attention from Trump's own failures, but they're also right, it sounds like. Yes? Well, here's, here's what you can say. The first case that we know of in the United States was an individual who lived outside of Seattle, had been in Wuhan, and starts traveling home from Wuhan on January 10th. So, in fact, this is before any um, travel restrictions are put in place by Trump, which he, to this day, continues to claim slowed or stopped the flow of cases into the United States and saved America from what would have been, he says, a far worse epidemic. But In fact, we know cases were already coming to the United States even before any travel restrictions were put in place. Is Can we blame Xi Jinping? Can we blame Donald Trump? I think two very flawed, very egotistical um, leaders who require sycophants around them, who both abhor bad news, like to have always good news coming from their underlings, and reject those that report to them failures. Both these leaders made a series of stupid decisions or ignored problems for far too long and put the whole world in peril as a result. Or in the case of America, even sold theories of it being not as bad as it is as an element in the culture war to ignite Trump's base. Because meanwhile, back in America, at the same time as the story you were just telling from China, the first reported case was identified in the United States, as you know, in someone who had returned from Wuhan. And on January 22nd, President Trump said this. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. It's going to be just fine. Now, maybe he could be excused for having said that on January 22nd, but as late as February 25th, Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, on CNBC said this. As far as the U.S. is concerned, when you look at this, I mean, you have a little higher headcount on the infections because of the cruise ship people coming off. We have contained this. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. We have contained this pretty close to airtight. He said that on February 25th. And the next day, Trump said this. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. You know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. 
So, Lori, there's uh, there are your Twin Peaks. Well, you know, let me go back to your prior question about well, don't don't the Republicans have some, um, you know, those who are claiming China covered this up and imperiled America? Don't they have some truth to what they're saying? Let me back up and say this: I don't have the entire CIA's intelligence apparatus behind me, but I knew in December that we were looking at a potentially extremely dangerous crisis. And certainly WHO was already activated and concerned, and certainly there were scientists all over the world that were saying this is not looking like a outbreak that's going to stay remote. It is dangerous, dangerous situation. And we now know that uh, the intelligence community made a report saying just that uh, well before uh, the, the first uh, case came to the United States that we know of um, and warned the White House but was ignored. So any attempt to claim that the cover-up that we, yes, was going on and did come from the very top in China in December and early January, any attempt to say that that is why then Trump gets away with saying it's only one case, then later saying it's only 15 cases, and then saying it's going to go away with weather. It's just going to, April's going to come and it'll get warm and the virus will just disappear. All of, you can't weigh one against the other and claim that one excuses the behavior of the other. Both of these deeply flawed leaders put us in the global pickle that we're in right now. China, there's an awful lot of uh, sinophobia circulating here, not just from the president, but even people uh, you think might know better are engaging in all kinds of anti-Chinese rhetoric, you know, starting with uh, the origin of the disease uh, is somehow in sick Chinese practices, and then the Chinese covered up the story for months and made things worse. Set us straight on the China angle. When the first patients arrived in uh, Hubei Hospital in Wuhan, the doctors were not sure what was going on. You know, in the early reports, and I very closely looked at all this with my colleagues, Weiyan Zhu and uh, Du Xiaojun. When those first patients came in, the doctors were confounded. And the first notes that they wrote to the hospital administration called it a virus of unknown origin and a pneumonia of unknown origin. And this went on for about 10 days. The moment they discovered that this was something quite different and dangerous, they told the National Health Commission in China, this was in late December, and within six days of the first patients coming into Hubei Hospital with this particular set of symptoms, the head of China Center for Disease Control called the head of U.S. Center for Disease Control. In fact, less than a week after the first patients came in, and as the head of U.S. Center for Disease Control said, the Chinese head was crying on the phone when he was telling him what they were seeing just in Wuhan. They informed the World Health Organization right then, uh, the end of 2019. By the early point in 2020, the WHO declared that something was going on. They sent people in to have a look. They were in constant communication. And then they decided... Uh, in late January to declare a public emergency. Now, I want to pause for a minute, Doug, because this is very important. Ten years previously, in 2009, 
there was an outbreak of H1N1 in California. First in San Diego, 15-year-old boy, and then another case uh, not that far away. This particular strain of avian influenza, it's called H1N1. Nobody at that time called it the American flu. That's important to point out. It was only called H1N1. Started spreading. Uh, it went to Mexico and other countries. And then the WHO, the World Health Organization, two months later declared a global pandemic. It turned out, fortunately for the world, even though 12,000 odd people died of the H1N1, it turned out that by July of uh, 2009, about two weeks or so after the WHO declared a pandemic, the virus began to dissipate and its impact was not as lethal as thought. Now, here's the problem. When the WHO declares a global pandemic, countries are obliged to buy certain kinds of medications, vaccines, and so on. It's actually a formal institutional obligation. You know, it's not just the name, oh, it's a global pandemic. They are obliged as members of the WHO and so on to do certain things. In 2009, European countries bought the requisite number of medications and so on. And this really annoyed a number of European parliamentarians. And in December of 2009, in the Council of Europe, about 14 of them put forward a resolution condemning the WHO for declaring the pandemic precipitously and incurring enormous costs for these countries because they had to prepare for what turned out to be not a very lethal episode. Now, the WHO since 2009 has been skittish necessarily about declaring a pandemic. In this case, there's this ridiculous idea that somehow China has pressured the WTO or taken over the WTO and suppressed any information. As I said, in late January, exactly a month after the first patients were seen in Hubei Hospital, the uh, WHO declared a global pandemic. And two months uh, later, that is on the 11th of March, the WHO declares a global pandemic. Now, this follows the timeline of the H1N1 almost exactly. And yet, there's this enormous propaganda almost suggesting not only that China suppressed the uh, emergence of this virus, what is suppression if the China CDC head calls the US CDC head in a week of, its, of the arrival of the first patients? I, I don't understand that, actually. The onus is on Marco Rubio, who first went on this tear, attacking the WHO, attacking the Chinese government, and so on. The right wing is all about the Chaikoms. I mean, they, I've actually said they, they bring back this Cold War term, the Chaikoms, because it's like the Chinese Communist Party in conjunction with Bill Gates and the globalist threat. It's just the, the, the nonsense that is spinning around about this stuff is just um, stunning. But it's always there's a, always a xenophobic angle, real contempt for China that um, is very disturbing. Some of this is anti-communism, certainly, but uh, you're right to use the word sinophobia. This predates it. China has had a very interesting place in the history of the development of modern Western thinking. The first modern global pandemic was in 1832, when the cholera actually left India and came and devastated France, devastated Britain, the United States. In fact, that cholera which returned in 1848, is responsible for the public bathing movement in the U.S. That's why, you know, there was this whole business of having toilets inside the house, bathrooms, I mean, inside the house, bathing daily, bathing twice a day, piped water. I mean, all of this comes from the cholera. And that cholera, in interestingly, was called the Asiatic cholera. 
there was this whole vision of Mongol hordes riding, riding across the steppes of Eurasia, bringing this cholera. In fact, the cholera was the Mongol horde. There's French texts about this in 1832. Uh, they had, of course, a hallucination, which is that French democracy and the Caucasian race would not get an Asiatic cholera. Well, they were in for a huge surprise. In fact, that attitude, I think, persists, this notion that, well, it's something happening over there, it won't impact us. As I just said, the H1N1 didn't start in Asia, that started in California. In fact, the so-called Spanish flu started in Kansas. Nobody has ever sought to call those the American influenza or to ask the United States to pick up the bill, you know, for the millions of people who died of those avian flus. Avian flu is a serious issue. It does have to do most likely with proximity of humans and animals. But let me ask you a question. Do you think that it's even possible for humans and animals not to have that intimate relationship? Are human beings going to stop growing chickens for food? I don't know if that's possible. I think we are going to have to live with this. We've lived with it for 100 years. We're going to live with it further. There are serious issues of habitat loss and such, which, you know, because of capitalist abuse of the environment uh, has made this sort of natural situation far worse than it needs to be. I agree with you. That, that's true. In fact, maybe the fact that some of these newer SARS type of viruses are much more lethal. It could very well be. People are making that argument. But I certainly know that this has nothing to do directly with China. In fact, all avian Influencers don't emerge out of China. You know, this is a broader problem of capitalism and nature. Uh, it's a broader problem than merely China. And I think the assault on China comes for probably many reasons, but I can just maybe say two of them. One is certainly it's far easier to blame China for, for, for the kind of devastation that this virus is having in places like Italy and, and the United States and so on than it is to blame these countries themselves. When you've gutted completely your public health systems, when you've basically run private health care in a just-in-time fashion, you know, where you treat hospital beds like real estate, what is a, a landlord supposed to do with an apartment? They don't keep it spare. There's no spare capacity. They want to rent every apartment out. In the same way, private hospitals have been running beds essentially like apartments. There's no surge capacity. Rather than actually sit down, look in the mirror and say, look, we really screwed this up because we don't have adequate medical funding. We don't have a public health infrastructure and so on. Rather than deal with that, it's much easier to blame China. That's one explanation. The other is, this is just a pickup from that so-called trade war, which really, I mean, I'm not even sure. Trade war, it's going to be no longer remembered. You know, the WTO has said that this particular pandemic and the way it's been handled around the world is going to see a loss in global trade volume uh, to the level of perhaps 32%. Uh, now, in the worst of the credit crisis, it, it dropped to about 12%. This whole US-China business about who's going to be the biggest dog on the planet that Trump is so concerned about, obviously the attack on China is part of that as well. Professor Gostin, uh, to turn now to the World Health Organization, you've advised uh, uh, the WHO for decades. 
President Trump, of course, first accused uh, China as well as the WHO for being responsible for the pandemic. Uh, could you respond to that? And of course, Trump then uh, cutting funding to the WHO. Could you respond to his decision to do that, as well as the fact that you've said repeatedly that whatever the failings of the WHO and China, the U.S. is is responsible itself for its lack of preparedness uh, uh, for the pandemic. I have worked with the World Health Organization under many director generals um, for many years. And the current director general, the first African um, head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, um, is, I know him well. He's, he's a man of great integrity, uh, great uh, compassion. Uh, he cares a lot. Um, so yeah, working with WHO, it can be sometimes can be maddening. Um, yes, they can be slow. They can be bureaucratic. But my God, what they've done for the world, um, they er eradicated smallpox. They're on the verge of eradicating um, uh, wild polio. Um, they work in child and maternal health. They save the lives of, of, of under five uh, children. They save the lives of women undergoing um, childbirth. Um, they work in um, diet and obesity and cancer and heart disease, mental health, injury prevention. I could go on and on. Um, so uh, to actually just try to kick the World Health Organization after all it's done on a budget around the size of one large U.S. hospital. I mean, rather than criticizing WHO, we should be dropping our jaw and thanking them um, for all the things that they've done. Uh, so what about this particular um, episode um, with the coronavirus in China? Um, uh, President Trump has said they, uh, WHO took China's side, but there is no sides to a, a pandemic. Um, and yes, uh, Dr. Tedros did praise China, but he's also praised President Trump. Um, that's just diplomacy. Um, I don't think that Dr. Tedros thinks that either President Trump or Xi Jinping have done a particularly great job uh, on this. And, and basically, WHO has been caught in a geopolitical power struggle between the world's two superpowers. And, in the, and, and at a time of a once-in-a-century public health crisis, um, that couldn't be more um, destructive. So what should the United States do? Um, it should lead a global coalition to at least double and at least double the uh, funding of the World Health Organization. Right now, we have the WHO we deserve because we've provided it with pitiful financing. Um, we've given it control over less than one quarter of its budget um, because we just earmark all the funds that we want for our pet projects. Um, we don't give it any political backing and the proof positive is as soon as you get on the wrong side of the American president, um, he withdraws funding. Um, so how is that providing the kind of political capital um, the director general needs to speak truth to power? So this I see this as a, you know, it's a once in a lifetime crisis, but it's also a once in a lifetime opportunity out of every major catastrophe. We have to make an opportunity of it. And for me, that opportunity would be um, to provide an emboldened and strengthened, well-funded, politically backed World Health Organization so 
in future pandemics and for future health crises. Um, we have the WHO we so richly need, um, which is a powerful one that will stand up the big governments and stand for science, health, and equity. ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use it to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. While so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time before you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. But you could use ExpressVPN to binge shows like Doctor Who on Netflix in the UK as just one example of thousands. You fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. It hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. But it's not just Netflix, it works with any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world. If you visit expressvpn.com slash left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash left. If I rewind the clock on America's thinking about China a couple years, I think about things like First, there was this belief that if we welcomed China into the global economic system, it would liberalize politically, which has not really happened. And I think that neoliberal vision has been left looking quite bad. But there was also this idea, and you would see it in books like Fareed Zakaria's The Rise of the Rest, about how should America think about a multipolar world? How should we think about a world where China would become, at some point at least, the, the single largest economy? Could that be a world that is good for us if we understood it as positive sum, not zero sum or negative sum? And into that step, Donald Trump, who had a much more I almost want to call it ancient take on this, which is that America should be number one. And if anybody else was going to be number one, it was going to be intrinsically bad for us. And we had to do something to to stop it. And that took a lot of hold after he won the presidency has become much more dominant in, I think, the Republican Party and now collides into this crisis. So given the amount of reporting you've done on this, both in the Obama and, and Trump administrations, how would you characterize the changing American psychology towards China itself? It's been really dramatic. I've been doing this kind of work, you know, reporting of one kind for of another. Sort of China analysis has kind of always been part of that for a couple of decades. And I don't think I've ever seen a consensus change as fast as the consensus changed on China in the course of the last few years. And I, I, I can mean specifically, I'll tell you specifically what I mean. There was a, a generally bipartisan view for a very long time that, in a sense, the solution to China was to hug them harder. You know, it was, okay, they're going to be fighting us on questions like human rights. They're going to be fighting us on how to deal with North Korea. They're going to be stealing IP. And always what we should do is just remember that if we can ride it out, that if they can, if we can help fortify them and build them into uh, a fully advanced 
economy that they will probably begin to at least play nicer, but also maybe even take on some more elements of political openness. I don't think anybody, and this is, you know, there's been a little revisionist history, but I, I don't think anybody really, anybody serious thought, okay, China's going to wake up tomorrow and become a democracy. They're, they're just, they're not. It was just not a part of any reasonable projection. But there was a real sense that actually it would help American interests and help the rest of the world. And frankly, what was the alternative? You know, if, the United States had chosen in 1972 when Nixon went over to Beijing. Instead of doing that, if China, if the United States had said, all right, we're going to put you in a box and we're going to try to isolate you as much as possible, basically make you a giant North Korea. What would that mean for 1.4 billion people? And how would China have dealt with its neighbors? Would it have been a more aggressive, violent, aggressive uh, party than it has been? So that was the governing view. And it was really, there were not significant questions around the edges. Some people questioned it. And then there was, because of Trump, I think he actually surfaced more than he caused. By coming in and talking about China in a completely different way, as you know, on the campaign trail, he said, it's time for us to, as he put it, uncouple from China's economy, the, you know, the term that became used is decouple. Um, but that was treated as a ridiculous idea at the time. It's now become kind of standard think tank panel topic in Washington, just, you know, three, three years later. And what happened was, it's not that he caused it so much as he forced the conversation, he shifted the window, he, it turned out that there really was this growing discontent, not just among Republicans, but also among Democrats, that that this hug them harder strategy was just a was just flawed. And that it was time for the United States to significantly rethink how they were going to do it. And they had different reasons. I mean, on the Republican side, it tended to be frustrations among American businesses that they weren't getting the market access they'd been promised, that they were sick of being hacked and having IP stolen. Among Democrats, it was a feeling that the United States was at risk of essentially condoning human rights violations and allowing a new system of authoritarianism to be validated. But they culminated in this moment in which you had almost, you know, in, in broader terms, it was almost instantaneous that you had over the course of just a, a year or two, a profound shift where now the default position in Washington among both parties is that the United States is, is in a, a significantly more vigilant and wary position vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And I think that is the new normal and it's a very unstable normal. Yeah, I, I think this is a really important point because Trump offers a very crude approach, I think, to, to geopolitics, which is offensive to a lot of people. It's this very zero-sum, dog-eat-dog world for you to for you to rise, we have to fall. But what at the same time he did, and I've had a ton of reporting conversations like this, was he created a lot of space for people who had real concerns about the China relationship to begin expressing them by staking out a more extreme poll in this debate a lot of business leaders and even a lot of say liberal politicians who didn't like the trade situation or what or very correctly what chinese what china is doing to the uyghurs and, and other things it created space for all these concerns with china to to erupt into the fore and it has reversed the whole polarity of this conversation you may not agree just as before you may not have agreed all the way with the hug them harder strategy but the question was always how to bring them more into the political system and, and, and what could you do to ease that? Now, you may not agree all the way with we need to make sure China falls in order for us to keep rising, but there's a lot of space for your particular criticisms or concerns or needs in in, in the relationship to, to come out. 
And what scares me a bit about this isn't that I disagree with a lot of the individual criticisms. I don't. But I think we're seeing right now that in the event of a rupture or a crisis, this can be weaponized into a very dangerous place. And so, for instance, uh, in the UN Security Council, the Trump administration was trying to get the resolution to call coronavirus the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. Um, Senator Tom Cotton, who many people see as a sort of future leader in the Republican Party, even maybe a current one, uh, said on Fox and Friends that China unleashed this plague on the world and there will be a reckoning when we're on the backside of it. This isn't the rhetoric of let's alter the trade relationship with China. This is the rhetoric you imagine 10 years before you actually end up in armed conflict with another power. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And I, this, is, this is really the heart of the matter. I think you described it exactly right. There, you know, what began as a necessary moment, uh, an update in, in our understanding of the U.S.-China relationship after a lot of deferred maintenance, has slipped into a new phase, which is that actually now a lot of the political dynamics that can drive unexamined thinking in Washington have taken hold, and they've taken hold in Beijing. And that's a pretty dangerous combination. And I'll give you a couple of, ex- of, of examples. Um, you know, even before the virus took hold, there was a very clear sense. I, this is what I was, I was really inspired to write about in January in this piece in the New Yorker about how it had become an element of ordinary politics now in Washington. And the clearest sign of that was that Newt Gingrich, um, who I think of as a, a fairly reliable measure of Washington opportunity had written a book called Trump versus China. And, you know, Newt Gingrich has published 30 books since leaving office. And the fact that he had recognized that there was for him some traction to be had on China, not a subject he's ever um, written much about before, was a real sign of a shift. And I began to hear from a lot of people, pretty serious China analysts, some of them very critical. I'll give you, I mean, one example is a friend who is Mexican, who has no love for Donald Trump and is a very serious China scholar. And he said to me, look, in the beginning, I I, I kind of had to hold my nose and say, I don't like Donald Trump, but I think he's doing a lot of good stuff here when it comes to shifting the balance of power in the US-China dynamic. And at a certain point, though, it lost the boundaries that it had occupied before of being a rational uh, new phase and had slipped into this much less considered version of analysis. It, it, it was, it was really, it had just become reflexive. I mean, it, it was now like everybody had to have a hawkish China position. And that in its own way is as risky and as much of a potential disservice to American interests as having a reflexively compliant position with China. Uh, and so the key now is to figure out what is that path. And now with, with the virus on top of it, it makes it much, much harder. Trump administration has repeatedly stated uh, publicly and in policy documents that the economic and political ascendance uh, of China is the primary U.S. concern to national security right now. In January, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo 
called the Chinese Communist Party the central threat to our times, claiming that the Chinese government threatened our own American way of life and of our own Western democratic principles. In April, Mitt Romney wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in which he said that China has a grand strategy for economic, military, and geopolitical domination, and that they're conducting an alarming military buildup, this ignoring the fact that the U.S. spends three times as much as China on military expenditures. So given all this, there is a political incentive to blame China as part of an effort to blunt its economic and political influence. In March, the Daily Beast obtained a State Department cable in which the White House instructed officials when speaking to journalists to shift the blame of the COVID-19 pandemic onto China and to focus on China orchestrating a cover-up which allowed the pandemic to spread the way that it did. You can sort of see how the levers of power work here. Around this time was when Trump started calling the virus the China virus, and shortly thereafter, mainstream media published a series of op-eds written by think tank people defending the use of the term. Like Mark Thiessen, who's a former George W. Bush and Donald Rumsfeld speechwriter and currently works at the American Enterprise Institute, he published an op-ed in the Washington Post defending Trump's term, uh, use of the term China virus. And Shadi Hamid, a fellow at the Brookings Institute, wrote a similar piece in The Atlantic around the same time. I also want to mention that a few weeks ago, the National Republican Senatorial Committee released a 57-page memo instructing GOP candidates to address the COVID-19 crisis by aggressively attacking and blaming China, stressing three talking points. Uh, one is that China covered, up, covered it up in the beginning stages. The second is that Democrats are soft on China. And the third is that Republicans will push for sanctions on China that will punish China for its role in this pandemic. And this is why you see states like Missouri announcing that they plan to sue China for reparations. So these two things, uh, the State Department cable and the GOP memo, they sort of pull back the curtain on this relationship between U.S. government and mainstream media. Mainstream media functions as this sort of ideological apparatus of U.S. empire in that its role is to fall in line with and drum up support for U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, Iraq is the most obvious example in our lifetimes but we saw it recently with Bolivia and Venezuela as well, right? And it does so through the right of representation, that is its power and ability to define our understandings of a given region, of a given people. In the case of China, media follows the Orientalist tradition of not defining China as it actually is, but defining it in its supposed relation to the West, so that China never fully exists on its own terms, but is instead held up as a foil to Western civilizational superiority. And China is not unique in this regard. It's also very, it's also very similar to the way that we understand the Middle East and the way that we understand Iran, right? So this sort of, this type of Orientalist and Sinophobic representation operates on two levels, the political and the cultural. As a government, China is imagined as an authoritarian regime, a human rights disaster, always lying, 
uh, always deceitful, a moral crisis to be solved. And the implication there is that it's to be solved by the U.S. through the implementation of Western liberal democracy. On the cultural level, as a people, China is imagined as morally and culturally inferior, a backward civilization, barbaric, filthy, diseased, weird eating habits, so cruel that they'll eat anything that moves. And so this assumption is that unless stopped, China will impose its own backward political and cultural civilization onto the West. And that's why Mike Pompeo called China the central threat to our times, as I mentioned earlier. That's why Mitt Romney wrote that sensationalist op-ed in the Washington Post decrying China's strategy for geopolitical domination. And that's why Chinese people in the U.S. have historically been imagined as racialized carriers of disease polluting the white American population. These assumptions, political and cultural, also explain the two primary ways that U.S. mainstream media has covered China and COVID-19 since the virus's emergence in Wuhan. On the cultural level, in the beginning stages of the epidemic, there was this obsessive coverage of Chinese dietary habits, the weird exotic things that they eat, traditional Chinese medicine, and the weird exotic animal parts that are used in that, and these so-called wet markets, um, the supposed unhygienic conditions of these wet markets, the kinds of animals that were sold at these wet markets. And what these did was revive old stereotypes of Chinese people as filthy and backward and carriers of disease. So I just wanna like take a moment here to point out that the Orientalist wet market hysteria is usually driven by people who don't know the difference between a wet market and the wildlife trade, which are two different things, right? Wet market is any market that sells fresh produce, fresh food and fresh produce, and it's fairly common. And we actually have them in the States, but we just don't call them wet markets. We call them farmer's markets, right? And the wildlife trade uh, is something separate and not as common. So this term wet market only entered popular discourse after the emergence of COVID-19. The term is a dog whistle in the same way that bushmeat was during the Ebola outbreak, in that wet market is an exoticized term for what we would call a fresh market or farmer's market, and bushmeat is sort of an exoticized term for any non-domesticated animal hunted for food. And what these terms do is that they both revive old stereotypes of certain non-white people as dirty and barbaric and just barbaric enough to eat these animals Westerners would never touch, placing the blame of disease on their own savagery. So simultaneously on the political level, we had corporate media outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post using the COVID-19 crisis as a way of undermining the Chinese government's legitimacy. The New York Times ran headlines like uh, coronavirus exposes core flaws and few strengths in China's governance. Coronavirus crisis shows China's governance uh, failure. And another one is, in coronavirus, a battle that could humble China's strongman. Foreign Policy published an article entitled, How China's Incompetence Endangered the Entire World. And The Atlantic published uh, an article with the headline, Democracies are better at fighting outbreaks. 
China's harsh response to the coronavirus has influential admirers, but Western nations recognize that public health fundamentals on public trust. And you see here through these stories and headlines how China is always presented in opposition to the West, uh, a totalitarian regime as a foil to Western liberal democracy. But soon China gained control of, this, of its epidemic and the epicenter of the outbreak shifted to the US. But there was still this obsessive hyper-focus on China and there was, certain, there was still a certain consistency in its media coverage that you could rely on. China and the Chinese government is imagined as always lying, as always deceitful. Whatever good it does is always driven by some ulterior motive. So when China started sending PPE and medical staff to other countries, it was accused by the New York Times of currying favor as part of a humanitarian PR campaign to gain geopolitical currency from other countries in direct competition with the U.S. When China was further along in developing a vaccine than the U.S., the U.S. responded by accusing China of hacking and stealing our research. When President Xi Jinping vowed to make the vaccine publicly available, the media framed it as part of an effort to defuse criticism of his government's response to a pandemic that has killed uh, 315,000 around the world. And that's a quote from Bloomberg News. When China pledged to donate $200 billion to the World Health Organization to combat the virus, which is two times more than what the U.S. has given before Trump cut off funding, so it pledged to donate $200 billion to the World Health Organization, and it pledged to dispatch medical staff to Africa. The New York Times framed it as an attempt to deflect scrutiny that they hid information about the virus in the beginning stages. Last month, China revised its COVID-19 uh, death count for the same reasons every country has been doing so, which is because in the beginnings of the epidemic, it's really messy and you can't really get an accurate death toll. And so all these countries started to revise their numbers to account for early deaths in the beginning, like in homes and hospitals and hospices. So the UK and, the, and New York City revised their death counts around the same time for exactly the same reasons, and nobody batted an eye. But when China did it, it quote-unquote renewed skepticism of its official numbers. When China banned funeral gatherings to prevent the spread of the virus, which every other country has done, both the New York Times and the Washington Post accused uh, the CCP of doing so to deny emotional families the chance to get together and complain about the government's handling of the outbreak, which would have revived criticisms of its mishandling of information in the beginning. So I'll end this by saying this. Analyzing this way that corporate media represents China and dehumanizes Chinese people is important because it shapes our response to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Given that the U.S. now has over 1.6 million confirmed cases, the most out of any country in the world, Russia is a distant second at, I think, a little over 300,000. We should be cooperating with and learning from China but instead we're engaging in this revived yellow peril rhetoric, which precludes any sort of opportunity for international cooperation.
As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that, and that's why we expect to begin to see a drop in our Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the U.S., U.K., and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. I would like to begin by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. The impact of the Chinese virus on our nation's students. The Chinese virus. The Chinese virus. I talk about the Chinese virus, and uh, and I mean it. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? Because it comes from it's China. Racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China, that's why. China, the country the U.S. foreign policy establishment has declared the enemy and perpetrator of the deadly virus, has it mostly contained, and is now in the process of aiding other inflicted countries with supplies of desperately needed medical equipment, including millions of masks and thousands of ventilators and protective suits. In a time of much-needed cooperation between the two countries, anti-China hawks are seizing the opportunity to push hardline policy against China as well as anti-Chinese racism, key to war propaganda. Politicians like Tom Cotton are making the media rounds to assert COVID-19 is an engineered Chinese bioweapon. This unfounded conspiracy isn't just the ranting and raving from a lone senator. It seems to be a coordinated attempt on behalf of the same warmongering neocons that advocated the invasion of Iraq. Now, with the same premise, to confront China... Allow international inspectors into your labs to disprove the claim. Furthermore, Matthew Pottinger, Trump's main architect of policy on China, is one of many turning up the economic war, advocating to sever ties, which will put even more strain on the medical supply chain into the U.S. It's not just war-hungry neocons, though. Corporate media outlets across the political spectrum continuously delegitimize China's aid delivery as propaganda efforts by the communist regime to, quote, curry favor with our allies. This all translates into much more. As the virus takes over, the U.S. is conducting mock battles with the Chinese Navy in the region as a threat. Just last week, the Navy launched live-fire missiles in the Philippine Sea. And throughout March, it's conducted regular military exercises in the South China Sea, something China has called a hegemonic act that violates international law and threatens peace and stability. The Pentagon sees open war with China as inevitable, 
Not because it poses any threat to us, but because it poses a threat to capitalist profits. So this pandemic is being used as a golden opportunity to fast-track this new Cold War. Even U.S. allies are being put on notice as they struggle with the outbreak. Cuba's world-renowned doctors and their effective virus treatment are being requested by dozens of governments in desperate need of help. But the State Department has issued an official warning to not allow this aid that would no doubt save lives, simply because it would legitimize a government the U.S. is hell-bent on overthrowing. Taking advantage of the pandemic to further demonize Cuba and claim all their international solidarity is just a front for communist dictatorship is unconscionable regime change propaganda with deadly consequences. So far, at least 53 countries have joined the call for an international ceasefire so the world can band together to fight a common enemy, COVID-19. At a time where global cooperation has never been more urgent, countries are stepping up to show true international solidarity. But the U.S. empire has brazenly shown it will only weaponize the crisis, making disregard for life its official policy. A lot is going on under the cover of the coronavirus, precisely what Naomi Klein is talking about with the frame's shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. Besides gutting environmental regulations and throwing money at overserved corporations, we see the Trump administration attempting to use the pandemic to justify existing economic sanctions on Venezuela and on Iran immiserating civilians of other sovereign countries to openly pressure them to choose a government more to the U.S.'s liking is not new, sadly. Doing it in the face of a pandemic is just further evidence, were it needed, that the cruelty is the point. Canada-based writer Joe Emmersberger has been working on this. He's written about it for FAIR.org. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Joe Emmersberger. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, let's start with Venezuela, I guess, where readers will be now hearing that Maduro is a drug dealer or they're a narco state? Mm -hmm. What's happening in Venezuela now with regard to U.S. actions and why now? Yeah, it seems like the United States was coming under pressure, you know, with with the coronavirus and all the fallout all over the world, the pandemic. It seems like they were coming under pressure. They are coming under some pressure to at least ease, not temporarily lift the sanctions they've imposed on so many countries, including Venezuela. You know, I wrote a piece mentioning that the IMF rejected an emergency request by Venezuela for loans, for $5 billion loans, a special emergency type loan they've made available to countries for helping through the coronavirus crisis. So Maduro's government in Venezuela immediately applied and got rejected very quickly by the IMF, which is typically run by the uh, United States government's mm-hmm. treasury department. I mean, they have the veto for loans to uh, middle-income countries. So it seemed like shortly after that, the uh, United States reacted to the pressure to ease the sanctions, which would double down, just basically go on the attack and put out indictments on Maduro and several other uh, former and current officials of the Venezuelan government, of Maduro's government, saying that they're involved with drug trafficking 
In uh, Maduro's case itself, it said that he had a strategy of trying to flood the United States with drugs to weaken the United States, which is uh, just ludicrous. But when you demonize a country, typically the United States, what they do is they portray the country as uh, whatever uh, leader they're after. It's not just evil, but also totally irrational so that you can believe anything about them. You know, like, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein, obviously, in that case, he was a, a brutal dictator, but he wasn't irrational. He, did, he wasn't hiding weapons of mass destruction. But they, you know, they managed to convince people that all well, these guys are against us, so therefore they're not really rational, so you can believe any allegations. In fact, what's funny, though, is that actually Venezuela would have much more uh, reason to issue indictments and charge U.S. officials because one of the people they singled out in these indictments is a general who was living in Colombia, and he just recently came out publicly saying that he was working with Guaido and U.S. advisors to try to organize some kind of armed uprising, you know, which would probably include even the assassination of Maduro. So based on that alone, Venezuela could be uh, prosecuting U.S. officials seeking and trying to extradite them to Venezuela for that. But you know, obviously that just doesn't happen because it's all a matter of who has more firepower, not has who who has an actual legal case. You know, that has very little to do with <laughs> with yeah. these kind of situations. <laughs> when you get to the drug traffic allegations, too, of course, and this is just based on the DEA's own statistics. The overwhelming majority of drugs is, of course, produced in Colombia and consumed in the United States. And even the, if you look at even the path that it takes to get to the United States, but according to the DEA, there's images that Venezuela analysis and other people have published online. It shows that the, most of the transit is even through governments that are typically aligned with the United States. So it's just another way to show how outlandish, how politically motivated the allegations against Venezuela are, because if this was a legitimate drug trafficking concern, of course, I mean, there'd be all sorts of Colombian officials and even, even U.S. entities, uh, maybe officials or other entities, that allow the money to get laundered and everything in the United States. The Trump administration has been so transparent in their desire for regime change, if I can say it softly, mm-hmm. in Venezuela, that it just seems like, oh, wow, now you're bringing out a drug charge? You know, it just, it, their, their mm-hmm. goal is so transparent right. that one wonders why you would take any particular, you know, iteration especially seriously. And yet we have media engaging it you know i, I guess i sure. could also ask you just uh, there's there sanctions have an impact they have an impact on human beings right i mean we can't sure. forget that of course not you know it, even if everything they said about venezuela's government was true and it's not i mean venezuela is a, is a, has a democratically elected government i mean that has to be said because even from well-intentioned people sometimes you don't get pushback on that particular point because it's just been so internalized repeated so often that people just maybe give up or maybe think they have other things to say, but that's, that's huge. I mean, Venezuela's government is democratic elect. That's what makes it so especially horrifying. It is as much right to call itself democratic elect as any, any country in the United States, Canada, or anybody else, but it's still being openly targeted. You know, usually the United States has a, a kernel of truth. Any propaganda, there's some kind of truth at the heart of it, even if it's embroidered with lies. Like, for instance, you know, Iraq. I mean, Saddam Hussein really was a horrible dictator. That was a truth, but of course that didn't mean that everything else they said was true. And also in the case of Saddam Hussein, you know, the sanctions, you know, you had UN officials resigning, top level UN officials resigning in the 90s, in the late 90s, you know, Hans von Spanek and David Holliday, what were the sanctions? Because even though, yes, Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator, but even the most brutal dictatorship still provides essential services 
to its population. They still have civil servants trying to do their best to provide health care and sanitation, all the basic stuff that a government does. And if you slash the government's revenue, then you slash the government's ability to import essential things, yeah, food, medicine, but also spare parts for things like the sewage system and electricity grid and all that stuff. So there's no such thing as reducing a government's revenue deliberately through sanction and not hurting the general population. Even if the government is, like in the case of Saddam Hussein, a, a dictator, a brutal one, all that, but still when you hurt a government's ability to buy essential product, and if you think about it, the worse the government is, the more that's going to be the case. I mean, the more likely the government's just going to transfer as much pain as it can get away with to population and spare the privileged sectors it looks after. So in the case of Venezuela, you know, Mark Weisbach and Jeffrey Sachs estimated that by the end of 2018 alone, just between 2017 and 2018, when Trump really ramped up the financial sanctions, by then they had already been linked to like 40,000 deaths. Now you can debate whether that's higher or lower, but that's only till the end of 2018. Now, in the beginning of 2019, they've constantly increased the severity and intensity of the sanctions, trying to make it illegal for Venezuela to sell its oil and for anyone to buy it from them. <laughs> you know, they kept ramping it up. So that is killing thousands of people. If there were an opposition movement in countries like Canada and the United States and Europe, demand wouldn't just be, got to stop this. Demand would actually be, hey, we got to prosecute the people involved with this. This is killing people. This is a crime. This, you know, People should be facing legal consequences for this. But it's hard enough just to get to the point where you can just tell them, stop. Absolutely. And, you know, so many premises that go on question that the United States has the right to do this, to exert pressure, right. to harm the civilian population of a country and the the idea is meant to be, well, if we starve them and make them suffer enough, then they'll change their government. And that's what right. we, we want them to have a different government. I mean, it's just assumption on assumption on assumption, and all of them are outrageous. Well, I wanted to ask you about Iran. You can link them together. It's also a case where People are suffering, but right. if you read U.S. media, it's all for a point, and it's just mm -hmm. hard to see what that point could be. In the case of Iran, it's a little different. They're not trying to claim that Iran needs to democratize. They're saying that Iran has a so-called nuclear program that threatens the region, threatens the United States. So it's more similar to the line against Saddam Hussein. Uh, you know, but there is no nuclear weapons program. I mean, there is a nuclear energy program, uh, but... There's a country in the region that refuses to put its uh, nuclear weapons under uh, uh, international control, and that's Israel, of course. But they, you know, they came and talk about that because that's an ally, so they can do what they want. They, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, we're Canada as well, just sending arms to Saudi Arabia, United States, and, and 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 all sorts of military support and everything for them to commit horrific crimes in Yemen. I mean, it's, the threat to the region is, is really the the U.S. and its allies. But Iran is singled out, as everyone knows. It's been a long time regarded as by the United States as an enemy. And Iran also applied for the same IMF loan that Maduro recently applied for. And they took a bit longer, but it looks like it's finally been rejected because of the U.S. pressure. You know, the IMF, like I said, is basically run by the U.S., especially when it comes to making loans to uh, low- and middle-income countries. And the Europeans push back very softly, you know, when they do push back. So that's an important point. You know, the, the complicity of countries like Canada and the EU, you know, it's basically a, 
a group of you know roughly 50 countries at the United States. It's, it's a minority of countries in the world, but they tend to be rich and powerful, and they, they tend to be the ones that play along with the United States and its aggression abroad. I was noticing that it seemed like a big deal that other countries were under threat of sanction from the United States, still engaging in trade or still making, you know, Mm -hmm. having communication with Iran, even though the United States took its exceptionalist position to say that they weren't allowed to do that. But it's not enough and doesn't amount to standing up to the U.S.'s bludgeoning. Right. Well, let me just ask you for final thoughts on coverage in particular that we are likely to see going forward. I mean, this narco state Venezuela thing seems to be just getting started. Who knows what media are going to do with Mm -hmm. that? What should we be keeping in mind as we look at coverage of U.S. sanctions? It's always about what they say and what they don't say. It's important for us to go back that the whole premise that I mentioned that people have have not pushed back on, even well-intentioned people, in my opinion, have kind of forgotten sometimes and might maybe even me I, i've forgotten sometimes to push back on the fact that venezuela has a democratically elected government you know in 2018 one of the big complaints for saying that maduro's government wasn't legitimately elected was saying that basically two of his top rivals were disqualified okay now they were involved in multiple coup attempts and they would never have been allowed to participate and certainly have been in jail in, the, in their country but it's worth remembering right now in ecuador for instance rafael correa has been sentenced to jail for 25 years, not allowed to run for any public office in Ecuador. But it's a U.S. ally, so nobody's going to cite that as an example and say, hey, they're not a democracy. Lula da Silva in Brazil was in jail when Bolsonaro won his election. And these are countries, Brazil and Ecuador, and are not facing an external threat like Venezuela is. So it's very important to keep in mind that the kind of so-called abuses that Venezuela is accused of are just routine stuff in countries that are allied with the United States. I mean, an even more striking example is Bolivia, where you have an outright dictatorship right now because the democratically elected president, Evo Morales, was overthrown in a coup based on a bogus electoral allegation made by a compliant OAS bureaucracy that's funded mainly by the U.S. So... You know, all these attacks on Venezuela, on Iran, they're, they're all based on the premise that what the U.S. allies do is is okay. You know, they can, they can do all sorts of things and nobody reports them in a way that says, hey, that's not right. That's not democratic or that's actually a war crime or whatever. But if Venezuela or Iran do anything, it just gets amplified all over the place. And, and, and this idea is reinforced in people's heads that these are evil governments. I mean, we can critique the way the United States brings them down, but that it's basically they're on the right side by, by being against them. The U.S. national security state as an infrastructure and how our first Cold War, hopefully we're not entering a second one, created everything from the National Security Council itself to hundreds of bases across the world. Like the actual bureaucratic structure of U.S. imperialism. How does that work? What's that history? Sure. So I think the history begins in the 1930s and particularly around the experience of American elites with fascism. Um, And what's so important about that encounter, obviously there's a lot going on, but to drum it down, it's that fascism appeared as an 
ideological competitor to democratic liberal capitalism that had a very strong military state behind it. And so oh, it was over the course of the 1930s that I, I think at least that U.S. elites began to view the fight with fascism as, as a mannequin existential struggle for the future of the world. So what happens, of course, during World War II is that in 1940, the summer of 1940, France falls to the Nazis. And this, historians, and particularly Stephen Wertheim in his forthcoming book, Tomorrow the World, argue that, that this is really the moment when elite Americans decided to rule the world, to govern the world, to become the prime nation in the world. So what you have over the course of World War II is two streams. One, a stream of thought that argues that international politics is best understood as a mannequin struggle against existential enemies. At this point, they meant the Nazis. And another stream that said world peace and prosperity must depend on the United States becoming the, the prime nation in the world. And so at the end of World War II, and particularly with the rise of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, so what American elites did was that they began to transfer the anxi their anxieties about Nazism onto the Soviet Union, which was another dictatorial regime, which did seem like an ideological competitor to the United States. It certainly was, but was probably not an existential, I, I think it wasn't, I'll just say, I don't think it was an existential threat to the United States. But nevertheless, American elites began to view the Soviet Union as analogous to fascism before them, and they had, at the same time believed that the United States needed to govern the world. So what happened in the late 1940s was that American elites to basically dominate the world and combat the Soviet Union created what might be called the infrastructure of empire. So this includes things like the military-industrial complex, Douglas Aircraft Company, Boeing, all these companies started to become defense contractors and really spend a lot of their money on defense. And then they also created the architecture of empire in the bureaucratic state that is in the White House with institutions like the National Security Council, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, later the National Security Agency. Um, they did this in the 1947 National Security Act on one hand. So you have um, official government structures of empire on one hand, and then you have what I like to think of as parastate institutions that support the, these government structures like think tanks, diversity of think tanks, academic research centers that together provide the intellectual infrastructure of American empire. And basically, these two elements, both the institutions of the state and the institutions of this sort of power state, and we should add a third element, the military-industrial complex, are basically the structures that continue to shape American foreign policy today. Moreover, I think at least that those two very large ideological constructs, one, that international politics is always a mannequin struggle between good and evil, and that the United States needs to dominate the world, is essentially what we consider to be mainstream foreign policy thought. And the danger is that, much like with the Soviet Union before it, um, any new Cold War with China will, will risk analogizing China to regimes to which it's not really analogous, and we could get into another decades-long, expensive, and extremely destructive in terms of uh, human life and, and everything surrounding it, uh, new Cold War. So how much of this is the initial creation of the national security state is organic in the sense that there is this, there is in some ways an exceptional historical event not World War II, we already had World War I, and there's a lot of uh, trends that could lead to something like World War II, but the Nazi project is unique, and it is appropriately thought of, and I think you and I agree with it, as in fact an almost one-of-a-kind historical horror because of obviously the project itself and also its capacity. So even 
governments or, or movements that might have similarly all-encompassing genocidal agendas, they don't have the capacity to invade half of Europe. Or So you talk about these intellectuals that helped give rise to the national security state who were uh, sincerely traumatized by Nazism, like Hans Speyer. That's one element of it. But on the other hand, how much of this is the sort of intellectual infrastructure over something that would have happened anyways, which is that the UK is and the British Empire is in decline. We still want a Western dominated market system that keeps the core rules of capitalist production and hegemony and central and the center exploiting the periphery into place. And now we just have to pass the baton onto a new imperial system with the United States. And that's sort of an inevitability including, of course, the aggression with the Soviet Union, because it's the only main geopolitical competitor. And it does represent, even with all of its flaws and internal contradictions, a different ideological path. I I think a lot of that, not a lot of that, I think all of that is right. I, I think we have to remember just in terms of Germany, Germany was the industrial powerhouse of Europe and had been for quite a long time. And and pre-World War II, Germany extends into what is now Poland. So it's about double the size of what Germany is now. And Germany now is already incredibly, incredibly powerful now double that essentially. So it just had more capacity than the Soviet Union, sort of a still largely agrarian society over the course of the 20s, 30s, and 40s did to to wage a war. So I think you're right. I think that if if one is to basically assign primary causal weight to why world politics turned out as it did in the period after 1945, I would say it's because US policymakers decided to govern the world. But the peculiar form that that dominance took was very much and very early on shaped by the Cold War. So the type of regimes that the United States funneled money to, the types of uh, wars that they got in, the, the, the types of defense programs and domestic propaganda that they did was all shaped by the Cold War. But I do think as a counterfactual, I do think they're, they're, the United States would have tried to take over the world, but it was the Cold War that made that attempt at domination more violent more vicious, and especially more ideological than it would have otherwise been. So for example, I, I think when we're talking about domestic politics, I think that socialism wouldn't have been quite as moribund after after World War II, absent the Cold War. I'm not sure labor would have taken the particularly conservative turns that it did after the war. I'm not sure the government would have focused so obsessively about destroying communism and destroying socialism. So I think like that could have been, you could have seen the United States attempt at domination while also a domestic socialist movement, but things like the Cold War made that impossible. So uh, I do agree with you. Um, but, and I do think that the character would have been different, though, absent a Cold War. And maybe actually also absent the unique traumas that some of the intellectual German, uh, uh, European intellectuals had around Nazism, which is what your book is about. And so I want you to bring us to today, where what has shocked me, not that people have criticisms of China, Not that people have Sinophobia, but that people have actually started to compare the People's Republic to Nazi Germany. As a standalone, that's a pretty extraordinary and crazy statement. And it's maybe even more dangerous than it appears. And I'm wondering if you could use the history of specifically that type of argumentation um, using that kind of state of exception with Nazism not only through the Cold War, but also to reify the U.S. hegemonic state post-Cold War in the 1990s. 
Sure. Uh, I think that's a really great question. So I think one thing that one wants to highlight is that um, Americans deploy the Nazi analogy constantly throughout the entirety of the Cold War, throughout the last 30 years. And, and if people around our age will remember that in the early 2000s, Iran was called Nazi, Iraq was called Nazi, North Korea was called Nazi, Venezuela was called Nazi. So this is something that is a, a very important metaphor in American political discourse. But why I think it's not just more, it's more than just rhetoric it, 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 is that it really has in the past and, and will likely continue to have real important effects on the structure of American foreign policy and American foreign policy making. So the, the, all the institutional networks that I just talked about, the National Security Council, think tanks, military industrial complex, they form a peculiar part of the mid-century state. So what happened at the mid-century is, you know, the, the modern state that, that we are all familiar with in our lives is really a creation of World War II. Uh, and one of the t- decisions that was made during and after World War II is that a lot of the, the institutions that make and define and think about foreign policy would be anti-democratic in the sense that they would be almost totally insulated from public opinion. The executive could essentially do what they want, but even insulated from congressional opinion, where the executive could deploy troops for, I think, technically, it's, it's, it was only a couple of months, but in actuality, it went to whatever they wanted to. However, the executive saw fit. And of course, the famous thing, I definitely have said it on here before, I think the last time the United States has officially declared war is 1942. And if, if I recall correctly, it's, it's against Romania or Bulgaria, I think Romania. Um, so we could see how foreign policymaking by virtue of being centered in the White House, is an incredibly um, undemocratic thing. And that was justified because Americans argued at the mid-century that the Soviet Union was akin to Nazism and the only way to to defeat such an existential threat is you had to make sure that basically the idiot public didn't uh, try to make the United States not do what was in their best interest, which is fight the Cold War. And that's always, I think, been the, the source of the power of that metaphor, the metaphor of the Nazi, particularly as elites deploy it, because what it essentially does, it allows them to do what they want without any reference to public or even congressional opinion. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is, I think the the, the rhetoric does make Americans generally promote a more interventionist foreign policy. Like we, you had just mentioned, there was actually a world historical threat in Germany and its industrial capacity. And should Germany have developed, for example, the atomic bomb could really have posed a, a serious threat to international peace and, and with genocidal um, ideology behind it. The problem is, is that though we've had other genocidal maniacs in history and don't want to deny that diversity of people, never has sort of industrial capacity been married to, to genocidal ideology in quite the same way. And it wasn't married in that way in the Soviet Union, and it's certainly not married that way with regard to People's Republic of China. However, using that metaphor allows people to believe that it in fact does which promotes the very sorts of structures and very sorts of foreign policies that you and I consider to be incredibly problematic. Right. So how is the talk about how you're seeing again as as a contemporary analyst and as a historian the drumbeat that's happening now? Where is it coming from? What does it look like when the think tank infrastructure, when public intellectuals and policy entrepreneurs I talked about on Tuesday, it cannot be denied that certainly some of the think tanks pushing this much more aggressive agenda, it's pretty raw. I mean, they they do take funding from Raytheon, from Boeing, from General Dynamics. How does that, how is like conventional wisdom start to take shape? Because I want people to understand that even though it's accelerating post-COVID, this had already been happening for the last couple of years, this idea of even like the pivot to Asia under Obama. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I, I just want to say, like, all the things that I talked about are, are also mixing with the long history of anti-Asian racism 
in the United States going back to the 19th century when, when a, a number of people from East Asia and Southeast Asia and throughout the Asian continent were basically li- labored in the United States and built the infrastructure of the American West, which was accompanied um, to a very significant degree by a, a, a lot of anti-Asian racism culminating in things like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which effectively barred immigration from China, the Gentlemen's Agreement with Japan which of 1907, which effectively did the same thing, and also the fact that basically people of Asian descent couldn't become American citizens until the early 1950s. So we can't ignore this like long history of anti-Asian racism in which Asian people are compared to, 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 to a virus and, and fifth column within America, and, and actually significant parallels to anti-Semitic propaganda from around the same time. So that's always a little background to here. But in terms of the what you're talking about specifically in the more recent context, I think that one of the most important things to understand about the last 30, y- history, uh, 30 years of history in the United States is that we see something peculiar. With that, the end of the Cold War and the end of what might be called the justifying logic of the military-industrial complex uh, and the military-intellectual complex, these institutions have nevertheless continued continue to exist, right? So the, the era, famously of the 90s, the United States is the indispensable nation in the 2000s sort of unilateral Bush move, and then after that with Obama sort of making war more clean. Throughout that entire era, the institutions and structures that make American foreign policy have essentially been um, searching for a... a, a, a Justifying logic, let's put it. So in the 1990s, people try to make it humanitarian intervention. There's a rise of sort of Holocaust memory. People like Samantha Power in the early 2000s, but she really made her career in the 1990s, are arguing that the justifying logic of the United States would be to make the world safe for democracy. We'll go around killing dictators and saving innocents, right? That's the justifying logic of keeping the American military structure going. Then after that, of course, you have the attacks of 9-11 and the justifying logic switches from the responsibility to protect or humanitarian intervention to there's still an element of it there, but it really switches to kind of anti-terrorism, right? And so with Iraq, there's discussions of democratizing Iraq, but you really get what I would say the so-called global war on terror is the new justifying logic for um, American empire in the world. And, And you see also with the global war on terror, the deployment of the Nazi analogy, where Iraq is compared to, to Nazis, uh, uh, Bin Laden is compared to the Nazis, the Taliban is compared to the Nazis. So that's also operating. And then eventually, I would say by the late aughts, by, by the early Obama administration, sort of like late term Obama first administration, it's pretty clear that that logic isn't, isn't as, as prominent, that people just aren't buying that ISIS is, a, is an existential threat to humanity. The trauma of 9-11 is faded into the past. It was a decade ago. Uh, and so you begin to get what I think you, you referenced with the Obama pivot to Asia is a new justifying logic with for the military industrial complex, military intellectual complex, which is this new Cold War with China. That um, the, the idea and the aid prominence in the 80s and 90s, particularly after the end of the Cold War, was that free trade and liberalization will eventually force China to become a, a, essentially a liberal capitalist democracy. What actually happened was that China became capitalist but not democratic. Uh, and so you begin to see the uh, disillusionment with that idea being replaced with this idea of China as a global peer competitor. Um, not only a peer competitor, but uh, an authoritarian regime that's analogous to the Soviet Union and eventually the Nazis. And that this has become the new justifying logic of the, of the American empire. And you see it across the political spectrum with the famous Biden ad from a couple of years ago with Trump referring to the Chinese um, virus and other supporter both supporters of both Biden and Trump basically coming together over this anti-Chinese rhetoric. And, and so what, what I try to do and what, what I think places like the Quincy Institute try to do and heterodox critics, left-wing critics, even libertarian critics of U.S. foreign policy try to do is to prevent this sort of conglomeration of um, what might be called respectable opinion around this new Cold War with China. 
I wanted to ask you specifically about oil prices because the storage reserves are getting full and oil oil prices might drop. I'm wondering what what's that what does that do for us economically and also what does that do for our operations in the countries that because we care so much about the price of oil and our, our operation tied so closely with that, how do you see that changing as um, the oil prices change? Well, that'll be one more economic shock along with numerous economic shocks. And then, of course, because so much of our oil comes from shale and fracking, you're going to see but, but I mean, this is just one sector. It's a major sector, but it's just one sector that's taking a huge economic hit. I mean, every sector of the American economy is, is taking gigantic hits. The hospitality sector, the airline sector, and because we can't contain the virus or we, we don't have the capacity to, to identify it and control it, this potentially can go on for a really long time which will send the economy into a kind of death spiral because how long can these small businesses afford not to function? We have what people get are going to get checks depending on their income level of a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. That money is going to go right to their landlord or to the credit card companies. And then what? What happens after what is it, four months I think they get? Oh, you get of unemployment. What happens after that? These are short term, very meager poultry and largely symbolic short-term offerings to a very distressed public. Meanwhile, Wall Street rallies. So, but yeah, I think the, the oil sector is just one component in, in a deeply deteriorating economic landscape. The Fed is now printing billions of dollars. Of course, the death blow to the American economy is when the dollar is no longer the world's reserves currency. Then its value will plummet. We know what it's going to look like because in the 1950s, up until the 1950s, the British pound sterling was the world's reserves currency. And that changed to the dollar became the world's reserve currency in the 50s. And the British economy went into a nosedive. So we're playing a dangerous game. We can afford to create this kind of money as long as the world continues to use the dollar as its as its primary currency, but you see both the Russians and the Chinese and others attempting to move away from the dollar. And that will be catastrophic. That will be the moment in which there's no going back because the American economy will then essentially constrict to such an extent that it can't afford to maintain its empire. Then we really will truly become a kind of third world country with nukes, which is kind of what we already are. It's just now it's being exposed. It's long been the case, of course, uh, but it's increasingly clear that economics, as you've mentioned, is inextricably linked with the American empire. And so kind of what I want to address next is one of my favorite books of yours was Empire of Illusion, uh, which I even forced my ex-wife to read. So you may have that break up at least partly on your conscience. <laughs> but the title to the casual reader, maybe it's misleading to them, as you largely are actually talking about the gap between reality and illusion in the book in, in the cultural realm as much as anything. However, reading it, I got the sense that the thesis applies quite well to American empire in the more standard sense, something that we talk a lot about here. So to what degree and what things specifically 
do you think the events of the last few months have exposed about the nature and mechanics of empire, of, of this American empire, this third world country with nukes? Right. So, of course, what we've done is use our resources to fund these futile and endless wars in the Middle East. Nobody knows the exact amount, but five to seven trillion dollars at least. And these disastrous military fiascos are characteristic of all late empires. Historians call it micro-militarism. And so you saw, for instance, at the end of the Greek Empire, the Greek-Athenian Empire, they invade Sicily and their entire, all of their navy, almost all their navy is sunk and they're slaughtered. And then the empire fragments and disintegrates. You saw in 1956, the British attempt to, after Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal, which is considered vital to British interests, there's this disastrous attempt to invade Egypt and seize it, and they have to retreat in humiliation. That was kind of, the British Empire declined slowly after the suicidal folly of World War One, but it ended with that example of micromilitarism. So I spent seven years in the Middle East. And for me, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq was the greatest strategic blunder in American history. It not only diverted all of our resources to uh, a, a project that we could never win, that in fact, we've lost, but it tarnished forever the notion of American power and American hegemony, because, of course, it was a unilateral decision to go in. It wasn't like the first Gulf War, which I covered. I went into Kuwait with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, where there was a diplomatic effort by James Baker, then Secretary of State, to bring in a coalition. I mean, we actually had Syrian and Egyptian troops stationed in northern Saudi Arabia. They, we, I went, I was with the Marine Corps. We drove by them. Literally, the Syrians were drinking tea. They, they didn't engage in any of the fighting, but they were used for the photo op of we were we were actually north of Kuwait City with the Marines, but they wouldn't let us go into the, I went in alone, but the Marines weren't allowed to go in because the liberation of the city were, was carried out by quote-unquote Arab coalition partners who had never fired a shot at an Iraqi, but that wasn't why they were there. So that was uh, a kind of example, or maybe the one of the last examples of the recognition by the managers of empire that you can't go it alone. But Bush was different, Cheney and Bush and these figures. So I, I think that the decline of the United States is inextricably tied up with its decision to exhaust its resources, its its capital and its credibility in these 20-year, almost 20-year projects of endless war. And in the process, of course, we have become throughout much of the world pariahs. That's not understood by most Americans. And and this has been capped with the election of Donald Trump, who's buffoonish and inept. And so it's it's all part of the same. It kind of closes the circle with the disastrous decisions in terms of the management of empire. I mean, in fact, uh, if you look at the early uh, stages of any empire, they, they, they actually use military force quite judiciously and quite sparingly. It's the later stage of empire where they're desperately trying to capture a lost glory um, that they can't, but that they begin to make these huge military blunders that result in, in 
in their destruction, their self-destruction. That was certainly true if you go back and look at the monarchies on the eve of World War One. whether it was, I mean, World War One was the death of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the death of uh, the German monarchy, the death of Tsarist Russia, because they miscalculated and they didn't understand. And that's exactly what we've done in the Middle East. We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin flagging the explicit anti-China slant in the elite media, The Brian Lehrer Show compared the failures of leadership between China and the U.S., Jacobin Radio discussed how any failures of China at the outset of the virus have been blown far out of proportion, Democracy Now! highlighted the benefits of the WHO and the political balancing act they have to do. The Ezra Klein Show looked at the worsening relationship between the U.S. and China with the last few decades of U.S. economic theories about China as context. The Red Nation podcast demonstrated how anti-China propaganda is preventing international cooperation just as that's exactly what we need. The Empire Files looked at some of the acts of U.S. aggression during the pandemic. Counterspin discussed the sanctions the U.S. is keeping in place during the pandemic and the rationale we use to justify such cruelty to ourselves. The Michael Brooks Show looked at the long history of the creation of the U.S. empire as context for stoking a new Cold War with China today. And finally, we just heard Fortress on a Hill speaking with Chris Hedges about the textbook actions of a country in the late stages of empire. Members will be hearing a bit more on the history of our relationship with China and some more nuanced ways to think about how to approach China from a progressive perspective today. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash best of the left. Now, thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. I will be getting back to those in future episodes. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you as often as we're able. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.